Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And Nike, always good to see you. And uh, for our viewers, uh, they are used to seeing us uh, speak to some pretty incredible men who they may not have heard of, but are doing some wonderful things in their community. And gosh, we have today with us Ward Connerly, who is a giant uh, in our country, particularly around issues of race and freedom, equality of opportunity. Mr. Connerly, we'll call you Ward, but it is so good, so good to see you. I am flattered that you would invite me to be here and thrilled at the opportunity of getting the message out. Well, fantastic, fantastic. Well, for those of you who don't know Mr. Connerly, uh, Ward, he was uh, a member of the Board of Regents uh, for 12 years at the University of California. And I can't wait to hear about your experiences there. You started the business, your son is now running it. But I love the fact that you said the, probably your most uh, uh, big identifier is that you are a child of the colorblind God, which yes. I've never heard anyone, I've never heard anyone uh, describe themselves that way. Um, so before we get into the Ward Connerly, who uh, had made such seismic impact in California and other states, tell us a little bit about who you were as a young person, and if there were any experiences that helped you think so dramatically different uh, than many people uh, of your era. I was born in uh, 1939 in Jim Crow. My father left my household when I was two. My mother died at four. I was sent to live with an aunt and her husband, Aunt Bird and Uncle James, who were living in Bremerton, Washington. They were part of the team of extended family members burdened or offered the opportunity by our dear Lord to mentor and raise this uh, rambunctious young man, Ward, Wardell Connerly. I lived with Aunt Bird and Uncle James for a year in Bremerton at the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard. And uh, Uncle James, who never got beyond the third grade, but who was very entrepreneurial, decided that the pickings would be better in California. And so Aunt Bird and Uncle James and I uh, embarked on a trip to Sacramento. He knew no one there, but he, uh, got a job piling lumber in Sacramento, outside of Sacramento. And that's where we planted ourselves. And uh, I stayed in Sacramento for a long time, was uh, in was student body president at the, at the 
Cal State Sacramento. That introduced me to the realm of public policy. In my senior year, I uh, fought the issue of housing discrimination because a foreign student was killed riding his bike to motorbike to to the campus when there was availability of housing across the street in the neighborhood across from the campus, but he was discriminated against. And uh, riding his motorbike to campus, he was killed one morning. Where was he from? He was from the Middle East. I don't recall even the the place, but it uh, ignited my interest in discrimination. And uh, I took that on as the uh, so-called leader of the students. And it resulted in the passage of the Rumford Fair Housing Law in California. And it represented my entry into that issue of equal rights for everybody. Well, let me ask you, how is it that you, so when you said you took on discrimination because as a young person, I mean, I, when I guess, I guess when I was at Cornell in undergraduate, we, we, we marched for uh, divesting uh, in, in uh, South Africa. Um, so I guess, but how, how did you take on, how did you decide to take that on for someone you didn't even know? I have always, and I don't understand this about myself, to be honest with you. But I've always wanted to be just a person, do what I think is right. My grandmother, Mama, as I called her, who was the chairman of the committee to raise me, um, Mom really beat into me the notion that don't let your friends or anybody else dictate who you're going to be. But do unto others as you want them to do unto you. As student body president, there was a an effort going on in California to get rid of housing discrimination, but it was floundering. And I then heard about it and decided to testify at the legislature, before the legislature, as the president of Sacramento State College. That then got me involved in the whole issue of housing discrimination. And the legislature uh, found out about my involvement. And I suspect that my skin color had a lot to do with their wanting to utilize my testimony for the purpose of making sure that the UNRWA Civil Rights Act, which was designed to forbid housing discrimination, would pass. I was not so invisible as a, uh, as a student who happened to be, by reason of my skin color, head of the Melanin Caucus in our society. And uh, it was just one of those things that was fortuitous. You know, we never know, this is off track a little bit, but you never know 
where your life is taking you. But I have found that somehow there is an invisible hand that is moving us around and putting us in place to do things that we may not even be aware of. Um, But I was there. And the only thing that I had to face was, can I make a good presentation? Um, I talked to Dr. Thompson, who was my political theory instructor, and I asked him, I said, how can I, as a student, go before these people and not embarrass myself? And he said, trust your knower. And I said, what the hell is my knower? I was his reader, by the way, student assistant. And he said, if I ask you something you're not sure, what do you say? I said, well, I don't know. And he said, you get my point? Trust your knower. If you know what you should be saying, trust your knower. And uh, I went and testified, received congratulatory commentary that I think was just, um, just there to make me feel good. But nonetheless, they wanted to pass that law, and I helped to put it, bring it across the, uh, wow, the, the starting line. Wow! So that must have been quite amazing, because here you are, a child who grew up in Sacramento, and now suddenly you are influencing policy and legislation. Fast forward then, and and I could love for you to jump in. Like uh, fast forward now to your you suddenly have now made it to the regents. Pete Wilson was the chairman of the Committee on Housing and Community Development. I was a civil servant at the State Department, California State Department of Housing and Community Development. And I was the one who testified before the legislature on behalf of the department. And uh, I testified before him. And when the committee was formed, he said, I need a chief consultant. And frankly, I didn't want to go because I, my mindset was work for two or three years in the legislature where I will be protected as a black man, move on to something else. But I met with Pete anyway uh, for dinner, and I told him what my career plans were. And he said, why do you want to do that? Why don't you go into the private sector? Why don't you go and uh, come to my committee, and that will enable you to launch from there to do whatever you want to do. But don't confine yourself to a career of civil service. I followed his counsel, went to work for him, He then decided two years later to go to San Diego and become mayor, run for mayor. And following that, he would he would go to the U.S. Senate. I had enough common sense to realize that I did not want to be a joiner and to follow Pete's career, but rather to have my own. And so I stayed in Sacramento created Connerly and Associates, Inc. Pretty creative, huh? Um, And uh, uh, that began my uh, desire to 
make a little money. Pete did, in fact, become mayor. He also ran for the U.S. Senate, succeeded, asked me to come back to Washington. I declined again. Uh, He came back to California, ran for governor. I assisted by making a, a, a few contributions and also rounding up supporters who knew of my connections to Pete. And that enabled me to serve a role of being sort of a point man for the governor. Um, Regular political hack um, that I was uh, with my own business. And Pete asked me to join his administration. I said, no. He said, Connerly, you always say no. But I said, I'm always looking out for what I think is best for me, Pedro. Um, I did commit, though, that I would serve in any other position that he might ask me to serve in. Sure enough, he called and asked if I would serve on the Board of Regents of UC, which has uh, 18 appointed positions. I did not want to do it because I wasn't sure of the time demands because I had just served on Pete's Council on California Competitiveness. California was bleeding jobs at the time. uh, And Pete had appointed seven members, I think it was, to a private commission to study why and uh, report back for legal for changes in law. Uh, workers' compensation was a major problem at the time. California was overregulated, and I think everybody knew that, but they needed a committee of private people to come back and validate what everybody knew was the problem. Yep. Um, so I served that role. For two years, I essentially left my business to to provide that service. And following that, Pete called and asked me to serve on the Board of Regents. I declined. (laughs) If you know Pete Wilson, you know that he's a very persistent guy. And so I finally relented and... um, committed myself to what I affectionately called a 12-year sentence because <laughs> regents, regents are given a lot of glory, but they consume a lot of crap and uh, are expected to govern this, at the time, $9 billion institution of nine campuses, laboratories, research labs, Uh, hospitals, uh, law schools. We had one meeting where the chancellor of Berkeley was uh, telling us about, as regents, about the admissions standards at the university. And guys, for the first time, I was introduced to affirmative action. And he was telling us about celebrating our diversity. And... um, 
and I looked at a bunch of documents, all of which had at the bottom, the university does not discriminate on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation. Uh, and I, as I listened to him talk about diversity, I concluded that the university was living a lie. And I blurted out at the meeting that in different language that I'm telling you, that the university was inviting a lawsuit, that what we were doing was morally wrong and that we needed to examine it further. And that as the chair of the admissions committee, I wanted us in at the next meeting, which would be December of 1994, to take a look at this. Regents can do that, but the bureaucracy when you say that I want to schedule this item for the agenda, they don't just take a look. All of the nine campuses and the heads of the hospitals and the law schools, they come in with a presentation designed to overwhelm you so that you don't raise it again. And But I'm of strong enough will, thank God, that I'm not flattered by BS that easily. And once I bite into it, thank God, I don't let go of it until I'm comfortable that I've done my due diligence. And as I told one fellow regent, we don't get paid for this. We're serving, in many cases, 40 hours a week representing the people of California. We are constitutionally protected we are expected to exercise our fiduciary responsibility to do what we think is right. And at that stage, I became a lobbyist for equality. And um, I had to decide what I was going to do about this issue. And admit that I... Warren, just, just to stop you for just one moment, so because I want to offer two points of commentary. I think Ian and I fully understand why now Governor Wilson asked you so many times to, to support him and be a part of his team. He, he clearly understood what you were capable of and your integrity and your approach to, to solving issues. So I think that, that question is very clear. And then just to go back to a point you made early on in your introduction where you talked about you're not sh quite sure why this was in you, but that you always just wanted to be viewed as a man with not with all these, the categorization. And as you said, you know, created by the, the, the colorblind God, I, the, the person that came to mind when you said that, and I don't know if anyone's ever said this to you was Jack Johnson, you know, the, the, the boxer, the, the first African-American heavyweight boxing champion, because he explicitly talked about in many books that he just wanted to be a man. He didn't want to live in this racist Jim Crow system. He wanted to make decisions as a man, make decisions as an American. And as you were talking, I have to tell you that, that that's the image. When you said, I'm not sure why I'm this way. I'm, I'm sure Jack Johnson, you know, in 1910, when he was bucking the system and just trying to be a man, I bet he asked himself the same question. Why am I going headfirst into this system? My uncle James 
by marriage, my Uncle James, but my surrogate father, essentially, never got beyond the third grade. But I've never met a person who was more independent, <laughs> more conscious of his responsibilities as a Maine, as he said, as a Maine. I'm a Maine. And um, the one thing that he instilled in me is this sense of independence, doing what you think is the right thing. And um, I think Uncle James and Mom, my grandmother, really did a an excellent job of shaping me the way they wanted me to be. And as it turned out, that was okay. They, they had a good master plan. Um, and, uh, I, st you know, there's still times when you don't know what you don't know, but your knower does kick in. Uh, and, uh, I, uh, I, I still have doubts at times about why I did this or that. But when faced with the choice of doing nothing or saying that housing discrimination is wrong, doing nothing is, uh, or saying, fellow regions, I think we're discriminating against students who happen to be of Asian descent, doing nothing or being honest about that, I really haven't hesitated. And I've done what I've been comfortable with doing I did not know the extent to which fellow people who happened to be black would object to what I was doing. I probably would have still gone ahead blindly and did what I did, but I didn't know that. Um, but I learned what they thought of me in very short order after I expressed my resistance to the use of race in the admissions process. What, what do you think that? What do you think that those people that you're talking about? What do you think that you were taking away from them? What 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 is it that that was being lost? Excellent question, Ian. Um, there there were there was one experience I had. I was sitting in the airport in Chicago on my way to New York and this middle-aged black woman in quotes and her companion whatever he was they knew who they recognized me and walked up to me and just shook their heads and I was sitting down and this shaking of content uh, of why are you disappointing us? Why are you doing this? And that was joined by commentary at various times that I was a traitor, that I was betraying my race, that I didn't want to be a black man. Um, that shaking their head in contempt was probably just probably just symbolically their way of saying you're a major disappointment 
you're on the Board of Regents and you're not following the party line. And I, once I began to get all of this, and I consciously made the decision that like the tree standing by the water, I will not be moved. Um, I then decided I'm going to go all the way with it. And I started delving into why was affirmative action so deeply implanted? Affirmative action was designed to bridge the gap between Jim Crow, an era in which I was born, and the mainstream of American life. That's what affirmative action was designed to be. When it was first suggested to President Kennedy, he had crafted a, an executive order that created affirmative action, but he also said race has no place in American life or law. And affirmative action was intended to be a way of making sure that the Negro, which was the term of art at that point, would not face discrimination. And Kennedy believed that absent discrimination, we would be all right. We would wind our way into the American mainstream. Martin Luther King, after King, after Kennedy had been assassinated, went to Kennedy's successor, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and said, Mr. President, uh, that's not enough. We've gone through too much to uh, have just, you won't discriminate against us. We need more than that. So LBJ beefed up affirmative action. He issued an executive order 11246 that put teeth into affirmative action. Well, to answer your question in about why um, it was that I was facing what I faced, we had developed the mindset as a people that affirmative action is essential to our existence. We have to have it. Moreover, a bureaucracy was built up around it. Human resource positions, affirmative action officers, an industry was created, and black people who worked in government, and that was almost the only path that we saw as our way of getting into the mainstream, working for the government, I personally had internalized that. We really began to believe that we could not exist without affirmative action. And I felt that that was just the absolute opposite of what we should have. I was a devotee of King, but the one thing that Malcolm said that made sense to me is that we're going to have to stand on our own two feet. We're going to have to build our own businesses, uh, build our own communities. Uh, to me, it sounded like a, a uh, live alone rather than be a part of society. 
and, and I didn't like his I didn't like that approach to it. King's role or his passion for integration um, made sense to me. And I fell in line with that way of thinking. But I agree that Malcolm was right. And in the fullness of time, it's become even more clear to me that Malcolm was on target. And uh, as a result of that, uh, that also fueled my belief that we've got to get rid of affirmative action. It's become not just a tool to get us across, not just a bridge. It's become the destination. And we're becoming so dependent on it that we can conceive of no other route. And it's going to, it's going to kill us. And my view was that as a people, those in the Melanin Caucus um, <laughs> who had been viewed as inferior, when I was born, um, black people really were considered inferior. And Jim Crow beat that into you in every facet of American life. Jim Crow beat into you that you're not as good. You can dance, you can sing, but you cannot be a doctor. You cannot even be the, 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 the football on the, 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 the coach, or rather the coach, or the... the um, quarterback. The quarterback of the football team, because you're not smart enough for that. And do you th and do you think the black doctors and lawyers and engineers and graduates of uh, great schools today, do you think their accomplishments are diminished by the existence of affirmative action? Because there might be some that say, well, the reason that these achievements have been made is because of affirmative action. What would, you, what would you say to the people who bring that argument? I'm saying that those achievements would have occurred if you simply eliminate discrimination based on race. They may not have occurred as readily. I would agree with that. But the price that we pay for that, for that abbreviated time span, is in fact the diminution of respect that we should naturally have for those accomplishments. I was flying to Arizona one day and I was boarding the plane and you know how the door of the cockpit is left open and you walk by the, the door and the pilots, co-pilots, one of them turned around and looked at me. He was a quote, a black guy, a man who happened to be black and his co-pilot was a female he got out of that cockpit came to where i was seated and said to me i know who you are he said keep up what you're doing he said because people look at me and they they show fear i can see the fear in their eyes when they think that i am somehow less than addict less than accomplished enough to fly this plane so, yes, Ian, I think there is a price that we paid. Now, that is, that is receding. 
time is catching up and the accomplishments are sufficient, we're getting that critical mass so that the the rebranding of people is occurring and we're overwhelming the paradigm of affirmative action. But 25 years ago, it was very, very heavy. And people believed if you have a certain amount of melanin, you got there because of affirmative action. There were even people who I encountered along the way who said, I'm proud to be an affirmative action baby. And as a result of that, society began to conceive of no other possibility but that, I, that, that these achievements are because of affirmative action. We gave that to you. And I think that is the worst thing that you can do to a, a group of people who've had to fight this paradigm of believing that they're inferior, of telling them that this is your place. This is your place in society. Uh, it's just, that just makes no sense to me. It's never made sense to me. Well, you know, boy, each segment I feel like we we need to take a take a deep breath and, and recognize some of the wisdom that, that that Ward has shared. I think the thing I take away from this last segment, Ward, is you know I think a lot of people have uh, images and ideas about who you are, and to hear you talk about Malcolm and Martin and w- what parts of their philosophy you agreed with and. And at, the, and at the core, as I was thinking about this interview, at the core, whether you agreed with Ward Conley or not, the thing you could not argue is that his fundamental goal was to make a better America. And whether or not you agreed with his approach, you couldn't attack the man for that. And I just, this, this, this conversation is just so magnificent because it reinforces so many aspects of that, your motivations, your approach, what you were trying to accomplish. Because I... I was really a kid, I feel like, when you were, when you were during your 12-year sentence, as you described it, and um, I'm not a kid anymore, and, and I have a different philosophy also about life, and it's just such a privilege to hear the underpinnings of, of why you took on such a thankless task, and the fact that you weren't paid for that 12-year sentence. I think we all assume, wow, on the board of regents of the lar- or the largest university systems in the entire world, that's a cushy, that's a cushy gig, you know, and to hear you articulate <laughs> what it actually was is remarkable. Yeah. My friend, I'm grateful to you for that commentary. I wish... I pray to God, I wish that when this ordeal all began, that my motivation had been understood because it would have saved me a lot of grief. And I think it could have expedited the movement of black people from the paradigm of dependency that we were really beginning to face in, a, in an organized sort of way with the paradigm of affirmative action to where we are now. There is in fact a rebranding taking place. It's happening. Mm. And this is why I feel so disappointed in President Biden because he's delaying that. The natural forces are have, have taken over 
and black people are accumulating so many accomplishments in our society that when you start saying that there is white supremacy to the extent that he's saying it is, when I can tell you, I don't see it. Um, all you're doing is creating a mindset that is, that is harmful to little kids coming along and telling them you can't do it because the boogeyman out there is going to block you. Uh, folks, that's not, that's not healthy. It's not healthy. And so I wish that I had had a clearer path to navigate this than I had. Uh, I remember the last Friday when I uh, got out of the hospital, um, I was scheduled a meeting with one of the best heart doctors in the world, Dr. David Roberts. And it was so important to him that he scheduled me for last Monday. I'd been out for 48 hours and I met with him and he'd gone through all of his due diligence and he said, Ward, there's nothing wrong with your heart. Uh, he said, your kidneys is the problem. And I said, I always knew I had a good heart. Uh, <laughs> and he chuckled as well. And I, and I, and I, met, I knew the double entendre, um, but I've suffered a lot of grief along the way. No complaint. Well, no complaint. I'm a big man. But uh, it's delayed society. It's delayed our movement. Wondering about my motivation has delayed our movement as a people. Black people, the legacy that I'm very proud of, I'm proud of my independence as a man, as a man, but the legacy of which I'm most proud that I attach to being, quote, part of the Melanin Caucus is that one of the two biggest ideals, the most important ideals in our country is equality. Liberty and equal citizenship are what the founders thought would lead to a great nation. And when you're denying one group of people their, their God-given right to equal citizenship. I really believe if you believe in an almighty God, you're violating what he wanted. You're also contradicting everything that the founders believed in. Well, who brought us to the point at which we're living out the meaning of our creed of we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's black people. We've paid the price for it every day for two generations. We paid the price for it, but we're the ones who brought our country to the point of respecting the ideal of equal citizenship and demanding through marches, through singing, through all kinds of things, demanding that we be treated as equals, not just for ourselves, but for everybody. Latinos, Native Americans, whites, everybody. We provided the leadership That's for right. our country on that issue.
Well, Ward, so, so I mean, we need you again. <laughs> we need to enlist you again because the quest for equality has shifted to now be the quest for equity. Yes. What is the difference between those two sets of ideas? They are contradictory. And the desire to look good, I believe, the progressives in our society, and I consciously avoid ad hominems, believe me. But the quest to look good is a political quest. And in order to preserve your majority, progressives don't embrace where we are right now by very by the very definition of being a progressive you want change often change for the sake of change without knowing where you're going to wind up there's some things that you should not change in my opinion the respect for individual rights, for equal rights, is one of those. Liberty is one of those. But the progressives in California and Washington State, both of which have insisted on trying to provide equity, that pursuit is destroying the concept of equal rights which we have fought so hard as a nation to achieve. Equity is saying that every group should get its proportionate share of jobs, of admissions to college, of contracts, public contracts. It's essentially an ordered society based on your proportion of the demographics in that society. I fundamentally disagree with that. I believe that the founders fundamentally would have strongly disagreed with that because once you buy into equity and you're going to uh, say that I'm part of a group, uh, I may as well forget about competing. I may as well forget about competing because we've reached a point in California where 5.6% of the population are identified as black. We've got more than that at the Department of uh, whatever in Los Angeles County. Right. So, so why do I want to compete and spend time if I want to be a civil servant? Why do I want to spend time waiting for somebody to die so that I can be part of that quota. It makes no sense. So equity is a violation of that pursuit of happiness, allowing us to succeed according to our own merit. Equity will destroy this nation. Thank you, sir. Well, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to move uh, toward what we call our speed round, where I'm going to offer up 
two competing ideals or, or two individuals and ask you to pick which you prefer and, and give us the reason why. You've already given us some really remarkable commentary on both Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X, which is one of our standard questions, but I'm going to hold that one. And we're going to start with um, civil rights or economic development? Civil rights is misunderstood because civil rights means equal rights. It means freedom of speech. It means freedom of assembly. It means all of those things that amount to liberty. But over the years, in the fullness of time, we have interpreted civil rights to mean black rights, to mean uplifting black people. And Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton became very, very distinguished at civil rights by that definition. But it reached a point where they began to betray equal rights. So I'm a proponent of civil rights properly defined because civil rights can allow you to achieve the economic empowerment, but economic empowerment will not allow you to maintain civil rights, which are critical to your existence as a, as a person. Excellent. Booker T. Washington or Marcus Garvey? Booker T. Washington, because I think he more clearly understand what I just said about civil rights rather than economic empowerment. But I'm not, I, I don't want to suggest that I'm not deeply committed, passionately committed to economic independence, but you don't allow me the luxury of, <laughs> of nuancing. You are definitive responses. So I say civil rights. I say Booker T. And Ward, you're, you're triggering so many things in my mind. I'm going to digress for just one moment. There was a story out of Detroit. A gentleman had played the lottery. He was probably, and looking at him, he was probably in his 50s. You know, probably weighed, you know, because I saw a video, probably weighed 250 pounds. 50-year-old, 250-pound man. He won $30,000 in the lottery. He took that $30,000 and bought a $20,000 gold chain. I know of him because he was wearing the gold chain when he walked into an urban and run-down gas station, and he was robbed of that gold chain in broad daylight by a couple of young punks. I mentioned this story because I, I put on Twitter, and, and you used it you know, the, in terms of economic empowerment. God, do I wish I could have reached that gentleman and said, why don't you take that $30,000 and put it into crypto? You know, I mean, someone said to me, you know, if you had put $100 into Bitcoin, I think in 2011, it would be something like $1.2 million today. There's economic empowerment and freedom, but how do we get that information to people? Anyway, a digression, but you're just triggering so much energy in me, Ward. The, the last question of the speed round, and you've answered it, but I just want you to, I want to encapsulate it in this segment. Malcolm or Martin? Wow. Gee, dear Lord. Um, <laughs> Given the two, I would end up with Martin, but 
I'm a man of nuance, and I try to explore both. Martin, for his time, he had this captivating personality. His brilliance about the use of language had greater strength than Malcolm. But as I say, in the fullness of time, there are things about Malcolm that that we should have learned the lesson of. And I think over that span of time, we could have had both. Could have had both. But I think given the... uh, the structure of you guys, I have to say, Martin. Thank you, Ward. All right. Well, you know, I, I have two more questions. One, I can't let you leave without talking about the legislation, uh, the proposition that was uh, uh, considered in the in at the same time of the presidential election in 2020 around issues of race. Uh, that was, well, you should tell us, but it was, I think many people were surprised by this particular outcome that I know that you worked so hard to achieve. Yeah, in 1996, Proposition 209 that I chaired, the state, and that's a small s, quote, the state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in the operation of public employment, public education, or public contracting passed by a 55 to 45% margin. People thought it passed because because I was a Republican, still am, probably, that Pete Wilson was a Republican who was governor at the time and that California had a, had a, the Republicans were more prominent than they are now. People thought wrongly that you put it on the ballot right now, it will be defeated. They'll overturn it. They'll take it out of the constitution. I moved to Idaho in 20, 14. And I stayed there for five years, for four years. And I thought that I've never lived any place where there was a greater value and a greater respect for personal liberty than Idaho. Hmm. Although I was at a more distinct demographic disadvantage. I felt more, I felt freer than I'd ever been as an adult. Well, and I also got the legislature of Idaho to pass the language I just shared with you. I got a call one morning from Pete when I was in Idaho and he said, my friend, they're trying to undo what you got passed, Prop 209. And I just want you to know that. They've been trying every year, by the way, to do this. The Latino caucus really wanted 
they were at the same point that uh, Americans who happened to be black were uh, previously 25 years before that. And they'd been trying every year, striking out on it. But now they had a supermajority in the Assembly, in the Senate. Moreover, they thought that you put it on the ballot and the people will overturn it because California demographically has changed. I don't agree with that. I didn't agree with it at the beginning. Plus, I'm not afraid of a challenge. So I said, let me think about it, Pete. I thought about it. And as Leo Terrell says, I thought about it. I agreed to come back. Didn't take long to think about it. By the way, there's a story there. Leo was my major opponent in pre in 209 days. Leo was one of my major allies now. Um, so I didn't change, but Leo sure did. Thank God. And Leo watches my back now as much as, if not more than, any other human being on this planet when it comes to this issue. Anyway, I headed on a plane about a week after that, moved back to California, mobilized people of Asian descent, primarily Chinese, who did not want to get involved in 209, but who began to see that there was wisdom in 209. I brought them to the table. We joined forces, created the California for Equal Rights campaign, began to mobilize, and over a six-month period, created a coalition that, using social media, by the way, which is enormously valuable for our movement, um, and we began to prove to the people of California that Prop 209 made imminent sense in a pluralistic society, the only way for us to go. And uh, we defeated Prop 16 by a 57 to 43% margin, stronger, stronger than Prop 209. And I believe it's because we have proven the wisdom of equality and the people now embrace that. And that's where we want to be. The people of this state, and I believe the majority of the people of our country, really do believe in equal rights. Ward Connerly, okay, this is uh, amazing. And the very last thing I have to do is to ask you for that young person who's listening, our 16-year-old Daryl, uh, who is living in forgotten USA, who may not have ever heard of Ward Connerly and, and is, is, is the one hearing all these messages about equity and what has to uh, exist in order for him to be successful. What do you say to Daryl as he now makes his own decisions about how to make his way in the world? Daryl, there are no easy paths 
unless you have a great inheritance. And even then. And even then, that's right. There are no easy paths to leading a good life. But more than anything else, get yourself empowered to lead a good life. Be a man. Take care of your family. Treat others the way you want to be treated. And more important than anything else, be a good person. Start writing your own obituary the day that you become conscious of being a man. Go to college, get yourself an education. For God's sake, don't take on drugs. I would say don't smoke, be a good person. Develop the individual characteristics that make you a good person and then define who you want to be. Don't let other people pick your friends, pick who you will support politically or define who you are. You're not a black person. You are an individual who happens to be a person defined by your society as black. But that doesn't define who you are at all. Be a strong person of strong character, and you will be all right if you follow that path. It's been an honor, Ward, Mr. Connerly. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Invisible Man. I am delighted. This is probably the most delightful experience that I've had in my 25-year sojourn through my nation trying to deliver the, deliver the message of equality. I really am flattered by and appreciative of the chance to appear with you. Thank you, sir. Our sincere pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Well, uh, for our listeners, thank you for listening. If you want to see this episode and, and other episodes, you can always go to www.invisible.men. Uh, you can get all the episodes there. Once again, my name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Faze yours. Ward, thank you very much. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 